living in Ohio, but for some reason, because I think maybe there's more Bolins there, but uh, in New York, and I had one friend. I had like a best friend. I, he's still a very good friend. We've been friends for, like two years, and then he one day he in, introduced me to someone and totally mispronounced my name. And I was like, "How can we? How can we be so close?" And you have no idea how to pronounce my last name. But it happened. That's like it's like a Seinfeld episode. It's like dating someone and you can't you don't know their first name for like the first yeah. two months. <laughs> I mean, that happens a lot, you know. Where you're like, I'm not quite sure I know uh, your last name, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially with dating. I mean, I li- I live in San Francisco. I feel like everyone here has the same first name, anyways. But uh, how's San Francisco doing? I'm wearing a hat, a hoodie. I'm wearing, yeah, it is. It's never been this cold. I've been here. I'm from New York originally, but I, oh, yeah, this is never, it's 10 years. It's never been like this. Wow. I, I mean, are you, is it, is there an end in sight or is it just going to continue on and be like a, a wintry spring? It's California. I mean, there's the ends always in sight. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, it's it's. So I heard you say uh, Ohio. Are you from there originally? Yes, I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, um, and then I came to New York for college. So um, I uh, have you ever been to Cincinnati? I've been to Cleveland. I've been to Akron. And I've been to Columbus, but I've never been. To oh Cincinnati. wow! Mm-hmm. You're making your way down soon. Soon you'll get to Cincinnati. What were you doing in Akron? I've been touring in bands. I mean, I toured in bands for 10 plus years. Akron, Ohio would have been, I don't think we played a show there. I remember going to a a rib joint, like a barbecue joint. And it was set up like a 7-Eleven with a lady behind like glass and stuff. All right. That sounds right for Akron. Yeah, yeah. Akron was, uh, and then we went to the public library to use the free Wi-Fi, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, well, there's great free Wi-Fi at the libraries in Cincinnati, <laughs> and there's probably a ribs joint too. So I'd imagine so. No yeah. excuses. All right. So were uh, were you writing those first words you ever wrote in Cincinnati, or did you wait till New York? Oh, I was a prolific writer when I was about eight or nine, <laughs> writing uh, tons of tons of short stories, um, and also like you know some very inspiring stories about how I remember I wrote a. a a really bad story about how a, a mixed breed cocker spaniel ends up winning the Westminster Kennel Club dog show <laughs> just by charm. Uh, you know, which actually works. That's sort of like a con artist story now that I think about it. It wasn't, I didn't frame it that way at age eight, but uh, you know, um, but no, I was always wanted to be a writer or a private detective. And so I was constantly writing stories in my bedroom in, in Cincinnati as a little kid. Um, a detective at eight years old. Yes, I was obsessed with uh, Agatha Christie and anything murder mystery at eight years old, and wanted desperately to be a private investigator, mm-hmm. like a Remington Steel type private investigator. I was you know, say Inspector Gadget. But I guess we're off a little. Oh right, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I loved Inspector Gadget, uh-huh. but I was like, I was really dreaming myself into like a, a fantasy adulthood. Yeah, uh, you know, what what was like. What was life like growing up? I mean, how how old are you? How old am I now? Yeah, I am forty seven now. Okay, so, so I I was born in nineteen seventy five, and uh, you know, most of my memories of that are you know of childhood are sort of eighties based. Totally, totally. So, were you a fan of Stranger Things? Yeah, I watched the first two episodes. I mean, seasons, and I loved it. I kind of didn't fall out with it. I just sort of yeah. drifted away. I should go back to it, but obviously, it really like conjured memories of suburbia midwestern suburbia for me in such a great way big time um so you grew up in cincinnati you're writing you know your i guess version of agatha christie short stories Uh, right i'm assuming you go through high school things like that how quickly did you end up in new york city were you an 18 year old kid when you showed up in new york i uh so i went to like an all boys jesuit high school which um I did not love, and they and, and still to this day, they're they're like their magazine alumni magazine keeps finding me. I feel like I have to keep moving until until they don't. They always find you. Um, so I went to college uh, at Columbia here in, in New York, and so um, I just showed up. I remember my dad drove me in a van um, all the way through Pennsylvania and New Jersey and just dropped me in the in new york city and manhattan and drove away and there i was so um it's been and then i was like instantly in love with it you know 
Um, I was obsessed with New York. For, I was obsessed with New York as a child, too. When I wasn't obsessing about being a private investigator or a, a writer, I had a lot of fantasies about, you know, Warhol life and, and like, the, the factory and that whole very cool New York world uh in ohio i mean ohio is a great place to dream about other places right (laughs) no end to that so um so yeah um i actually wasn't 18 i i transferred to columbia so i had spent a year at another college before i transferred Mm -hmm. uh in tennessee this would be what the second half of the 90s i came here in 1996 Uh Mm -hmm. so uh yeah and um and so that was, I mean, that was a great time to be in New York, I have to say. I think probably anyone who first arrives in New York at any age, I mean, at any time, if they're young, it's a great time to be in New York. But I found that the mid-90s were just like, it was awesome because it was just still so wild and hedonistic and untamed. And there were just so, there were sections of Manhattan that felt completely different from each other and some were really dangerous. Most were so exciting. They all had so much personality of their own. And it was also so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a, it was a very different city then to the 21st century city. Um, and I loved it. I loved it so much. It was when Alphabet City was actually like a Velvet Underground song. Um, it, it, absolutely. And I remember you could go, when I, in 1996, you could go to Avenue A but if you went beyond Avenue A, you were taking your life in your hands. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was so dangerous. And actually, I have a theory that what changed it all was uh, the advent of cash machines. Because as soon as they started putting cash machines on First Avenue, that was almost like the, 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 the gentrifier that like moved, kept moving everything. There's literally money uh, here. Please come. Yes, Please literally, they like planted money on corners, and so people would like gravitate toward it. So, um, but yeah, I remember like you know, it was just like if you went to Avenue C, it was just like a total. You never knew what was going to happen there, you know, and that was yeah. so, so exciting. I mean, you did. You just get some some drugs, but yeah, no, uh, <laughs> right? Or get it was a great place to get um, drugs. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. yeah. yeah. So were, uh, if you could put yourself back in that time, were you working on that first book back then? Or was it some time until you would really kind of get going in that? You know what? I um, really wanted to be a writer. I was an English major. Um, I uh, loved writing, but I did not. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to be, I think most people who love books want to be a writer when they're young. They sort of see it as a, and that just means they want to be around books. It, you know, it, it, you can either end up a, an editor or work in a library or sorry about this. That's um, but uh, I, um, I, I, I took some writing classes in college and I thought of myself as a poet at that point. Um, <laughs> so I wrote a lot of really bad poetry and uh, a few good ones. I actually found a few lately. I was like, they're not that bad. Um, but uh but then after I graduated from school, I didn't write. Um, I didn't write fiction at all until I was about 30. So wow. I took I took my 20s off um, to still sort of live. And I mean, I was writing a lot. I was writing a lot as a journalist and working at magazines and that whole thing. But um, it took me a while to get back to it. I sort of had lost my... Uh, I didn't think... I don't think I lost my faith in, in my writing, but I just became distracted with being in my twenties in, in New York and, and that whole thing. So, um, what, what magazines were you working for at the time? Uh, I went to, so after I graduated from college, I, I spent, uh, uh, half a year in Venice as, as, at the Peggy, as a, as an intern at the Peggy Guggenheim, which was great and changed my life. And then I came back and I worked a lot, wrote a lot for art magazines like art forum. I, my first magazine job, was at Time Out New York in the late 90s, which was a really great way to learn about magazines because it was a weekly and it was just so intense. Like the turnover, so you had to write so quickly and work so fast. And um, it, and it really taught me so much. And then I worked at a magazine called V as part of Visionaire for a while. And then eventually I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of Interview Magazine, um, which uh, which. I went to in 2008 and then I realized about two years in that I was not meant to be the captain of any ship 
uh, except for <laughs> that other people were on. And so I've since been like the editor at large and I, you know, I'm a contributor at Vanity Fair and I still write for the Times and a bunch of places. But that was sort of when I shifted in. I've decided that I really, what I really wanted to do is pursue my own writing and, and write fiction and not, and not really work uh, a top job as a, in a magazine. And I had no interest because I, I just I had very little ambition in that way. I didn't so, really care about the wielding of power and culturally at all. So, <laughs> were you around some? I mean, again, this is a different time. I'm not sure how magazines really work now, but I mean, Time Out probably back then was a huge deal. Um, it was great. Yeah, no, I can only imagine you probably you know having your pulse in the city in that way, but also thinking about it now, you're still around words, right? During this, yeah. time, looking at words, or they might not be in a novel or a book, but they're in your head, right? I mean, that must have helped in some fashion. Absolutely. Um, I feel like I got to interview so many great people in, in, as part of those jobs at, at, at V and interview, an interview especially, um, and just talk to so many writers who are older, like, you know, Norman Mailer and oh, wow. Joan Didion and Toni Morrison and uh, Gore Vidal and, you know, just so many exceptional writers. And it was almost like a, my own grad school program, just like talking, you know, really studying these writers and then getting a chance to talk to them one on one. So um, certainly. And I, you know, I was always sort of plotting in my head during the tw my 20s. I just wasn't. I was just too wild and going out too much to like actually sit down and do the work. And as you know, as we all know, who, as we write, like writing is such a lonely, sedentary job in so many ways. And so eventually, if you really want to be a writer, you're just going to have to like stay in, <laughs> accept the loneliness or Party the aloneness. Yeah. yeah. And, and exactly. And um, so that eventually happened, which was, which was needed. But, uh, but yes, words were always part of my life, even this in this journalistic activity of, of my 20s and, and early 30s was still front and center for sure um the funny thing is is when i went to when i went to write my first novel so many people said you should write like about being young in new york now there's no novel for this generation like that and i was going out very late and i was a you know a real social social it's amazing because i'm so asocial now but i was extremely social in my 20s and I was like, no, that's too expected. Like, that's exactly the novel people would expect me to write. And I wanted to, like, prove myself, right? And uh, I, so I wrote a, a totally different kind of novel. And I'm proud of that novel. But I wish to death I had written that 20s novel in really? New York. Oh, I think it would have been so fun. And, and I think I would have gotten it so right. Now I couldn't write about being super young in New York. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm but I, but I, but I, I think it was a missed opportunity to write about the the early two thousands and what was happening there. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you write what you can. You write the stories that that appeal to you at the time and the and the the magnets that you're drawn to. You know, like you know, you, you can go. Like someone else should have written it, I guess, but no one really did. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't really beat yourself up over that. But at the same time, it's like, I feel, you know, with culture, it always circles back. So I feel like now we're entering a 90s phase where everything's like fashion, music, you know, pop punk bands are coming back. It's all kind of circling back around. And I find it interesting when writers write period pieces from not that long ago. So you're right. talking about writing a piece, you know, in the early 2000s, which in our minds is like yesterday. But yeah, for, totally. For some TV, you know, was eighteen now and grew. It was born in what you know, two thousand and five or something like that. Um, people, I don't know how old you are, but when people cross the birth date threshold of like the twenty first century, I feel really crazy. I, I'm thirty five, so I'll put you at okay. It. Um, yeah, no worries. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I guess at that time, what Sex and the City would have been on TV. I don't really know what New York stuff was right. happening. That would have been, but I was, I mean, but my New York would have been the opposite of Sex exactly. and the City, which was ruining New York. I felt at the time because I was living like a, like a at that time. I was living right. Um, books really are also not great, but. American Psycho is like Sex in the City in a way. It's not really uh, about like you know a cooler class of people, but um, 
I, I was living in right below the meatpacking district in the West Village. And during Sex in the City, I, I mean, it just became like infiltrated with 50 year old women from New Jersey in high heels them. trying to mimic <laughs> those people. I mean, now I'm about to turn 50. So who am I to talk? But, um, and you know, what's so weird about that show is like, I remember watching it and just hating it and being like, this is not New York. This is exactly what's wrong with New York. It's a horrible show. Like a year ago, I was at the gym on a treadmill, which shows, you know, how much I've changed. And I, that like a first season episode of that show came on and I was watching it. And I was like, this is such a good show. <laughs> really showing, showing like such a cool side of New York. And it just goes to show that like New York has changed so much. But now that New York does seem really amazing. Big time, big time. Uh, you know, cell phones or so. catching cabs. Uh, yeah, no, it was a different time. Um, I know. It's so funny. Yeah, so that first book, was that a struggle to get that published? Was it published in a, in a traditional sense? It was a um, it was a struggle to get published. Actually, it was, a, yes, it was a struggle to get published. It was a struggle to write, because I didn't know how to write a novel. You don't know how to write a novel until you write a novel. Uh, and I spent five years writing it. Sometimes I thought I was only doing it to, to allow myself to chain smoke, because that's back when I smoked. <laughs> so it just like, gave me a wonderful excuse to sit in a room and just smoke Marlboro lights, uh, indefinitely. I know. Um, and from camel lights, but, um, I, uh, yeah. So, and then I took five years and I had, uh, it suffers, I think from first novel syndrome, I call it, which is like, you think the world's ending and you think you only have one novel that you can that you'll write and you need to put every idea you've ever had into it like just everything needs to go into one novel um so it was like very bloated and big and had a lot of ideas big and small all over the place and um uh it 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 was eventually published by a small press um uh, called counterpoint uh and they did a great job and uh edited it down and you know, it's a weird novel, um, but it taught me so much about writing. I just had, you had to go through that process of figuring out how you're going to write a book. And also you're still sort of struggling to find your voice. And it, it's a little magical realist. And, and I realized, one of the many things I realized from writing that book is that I really should not be writing ma- magical realist books. But um, it was, uh, it was it, yeah, it was an education. Mm-hmm. Uh but I also think that like, you know, my advice always for writers is like, is you don't have to swallow the whole world. Like you can have a very small, you can have a smaller frame and do so much with it. And it doesn't have to be about like, you know, life and what is America. And, you know, it just, I mean, those big ideas that we want to shove in. It doesn't have to be American pastoral. I mean, he, he started with goodbye Columbus so we can, you know. Right, right. Um, Even American Pastoral has a smaller frame to it, you know, than than I think I was, I think I was trying to do like a mailer or something, you know, like something giant and um, talk about someone who's really fallen out of favor. I think the Executioner song might be above my head. Ah, Oh, there it is right there. Um, Yeah. yeah, One of my favorite books. One of the best books ever, ever written without a doubt. Especially the, the first half of it is the most beautiful thing in the world. The simplicity and the way he gets the characters and doesn't have to justify them is just like it's it's so good. For it's anyone listening, yeah, for anyone listening to this at this exact moment in time, if you're watching any of the Netflix stuff, any of the Murdow murder stuff, this was like the first one. I mean, this was totally mm-hmm. brutal stuff. A, it's, a, it's so brutal, and there's something just even just from the characters, he gets the whole landscape in. Yeah. It's, it's 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 breathtaking. You make me want to reread the first chapter again. <laughs> Is it on your bookshelf behind you? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Good, sure. good, good, right. All right. Like well, a minute. I'm sure I can find it. Well, so well. Sometimes <laughs> I'll do I'll do the podcast, and the, and the author will pop up, and the bookshelf behind them is one of those like perfectly, you know, everything's red, everything's blue, everything. Oh right. Blue. So I, I'm happy not not to see that. <laughs> and I have no order to this. That's crazy. And then sometimes. So like just the other day, I was like, I guess I lost that book. Yeah. And then I ordered a new one. And then I was like laying down reading and I look over and I was like, oh, there it is. There like, it is. I, it's, it's so hard to find everything. 
Yeah. But wait, I am determined to find. It'll happen. <laughs> okay. It's so here that, somewhere. So that, first book, that first book comes out. Um, it, it, I don't know if you're expecting to, you know, be the next John Updike. Um, I'm assuming that didn't happen. How, did you, did not, feel, did not how did you feel going forward now into that second novel? Were you still at the magazine at that time? Were you working full-time? Yeah, I was working full-time. Um, I'm still working full-time, really, in a way. But um, I... Uh, 2011 at a small press. I mean, I think it like, it, it sold out its um, advance, but it was obviously not a bestseller. And... Uh, my agent, who is also a dear friend of mine, Bill Clegg, he said that he gave me the best advice early on. And he said, you should always start the next book before the book, the previous book comes out. Because if you, uh, if it's a success, you'll feel nervous to start the next book because you'll feel like you have to match the success. And if it's a failure, you'll feel so disappointed you won't want to start again. And just to have something else going is, is so is so good because uh, you already have something to go back to, and that's what I had done. And um, in retrospect, I mean, God, I had I had so much more confidence then than I do now in a way. Because in retrospect, I just assumed the next book would be published and it would be great. <laughs> now I never think that, but um, I started writing Orient, which was the next book that came out, and that was, I mean, written on spec too. I never had a, like a deal. I was just sort of writing and hoping and and uh and following sort of my instinct to write a murder mystery that was the first book wasn't a murder mystery although there's a murder in it but the second book is really a murder mystery full stop like a whodunit and for people who might not know when you say you're writing on spec um that would mean that you're writing something in the hopes that something might happen with it you have no absolutely that means there's like no contract there's no like a promise to publish there's no uh a little purse money to, to write on. You're just writing a book. And when, and you know, for fiction, you often have to sell, unless you are a success with your first book, you also, you often have to sell the book upon completion. You have to have a draft completed nonfiction. You can sometimes just turn in a, a few chapters and, and they get the tenor. But, um, and so I just kind of went at it all over again. And, um, and that was great. And then, and Harper took that up and, and, you know, there was a lot of interest in that book and, and so that was, uh, that was wonderful to see. It was set on, it was called Orient and it was set, it came out in 2015. It was set, uh, on Orient, which is on the North Fork of Long Island, well, it seems which like, which, which like New York city from when I came to now, from when I wrote that book to now, Orient is a very different place too. You know, it's changed a lot. So, yeah. well, I mean, looking through your bibliography, it seems like these books, you have specific, you're very location based. Um, yes. Do you, does that I'm help you? with location? Okay, great. Does that help you get comfortable writing settings? Is it easier going into it knowing that it's all going to take place maybe in one location? Is that easier as a writer for you, or is it just kind of? Yeah, no. Well, if I mean, I I feel like uh, I think there are some writers who can write about you know it's all about characters, and you can put those characters anywhere. They could be floating in a spaceship or in a garden in London. But I feel like so much of my books, the plots and what, you know, everything comes from the particular locations. And I sort of pride myself on that because I do a lot of research about them. I visit them. I go. I mean, there are writers, too, who I can write about a, a foreign city just by watching a bunch of YouTube clips. But I could never do that because I really want to get the, the sight and sound and tastes and smells um, and the politics of the places. Um yeah, I mean, and that's just such a, to me. That's just such a wonderful motor for the plot is is what's happening in the in the world around these characters too, and why they're there. Um, so yeah, I I think of the character. I mean, I think of the location as sort of the main character of mm -hmm. the book. You know, one of the key protagonists or antagonists of of, of the book. Um, just to go back to what you said about your agent telling you about to start the next book. You can even go even more micro with that where anyone listening to this, if you're writing and you feel like you're getting stuck, oh, what I do is I always leave myself a trail for the next day. So if yes. I'm writing at night, I will even just once anything to lead you into the next thing is already a hurdle that you can jump to help. It's so true. 
That's so helpful. You know what? Another thing that I did, because um, I was writing these really long books for a while, I've been sort of trying to, to shorten them a bit. But, um, and I find like there was that, do you remember that documentary? I wish I remembered the name of it. And it was about like a guy who was a, a climber, a hiker in the, a mountain, and he fell into a crevasse and was left for dead. The, the James and, Franco movie, right? He cut, has to cut off his arm or his leg. No, it was a, diff- oh. it was a, it was a different one than the arm <laughs> okay. cut off. It was this was a documentary. Uh, oh. People, I guess, are falling into uh, crevasses constantly. But this one, so he wasn't dead like his friend thought, and he crawled down the mountain to to be rescued to the very end. And he said, "If I had ever thought that I had to crawl all the way down the mountain, I would have just given up." So I just made these like get to that tree or like get to that next rock or like, so you set these like little goals. And I feel like the same is exactly true for writing a novel. You cannot think like, I have to write this huge novel with all these characters. You just have to think like in a scene, like I just have to get to the end of this scene. Like, that's it. Don't even think ahead. Just write to the end of the scene and you're done and you're done for now. And then the next will come, you know? So it's, you really do have to break it down and give yourself like small goals to get to. And as you said, that's always good. It's like, for me too, like giving myself just a little diving board for the next day to jump off on. So the second book comes out, I'm assuming, you know, it did well for you. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, it did well. I mean, I I felt it did well. Yeah, I thought it did well. And I thought it was, uh, it came out, you know, and people really responded to it. It was uh, well read. And so that was exciting. And that felt different than the first book, just because it was a, it was a different kind of book too. And, um, and then I was, and then, and actually I had a two book deal for that. So that I had some assurance that another book was on its way. And so that was great and super exciting. And I wrote a novel set on a Greek island called The Destroyers uh, on Patmos, um, and which was, you know, very different than writing about America. It was this uh, sort of a beautiful Greek island, um, which was also a mystery and uh, or maybe a bit more of a thriller. And um, that was great because then I, I would go there for three summers in a row and just sort of uh you know do research slash just swim in the aegean all day but uh on or like you know motorbike around the island but uh it was great and um that was a lot of fun to write that book and and yeah so so i've been with harper since and uh keep writing these places as you say and it's been really nice Mm-hmm. Had you been to Greece prior to writing that book, or was there any moment that kind of sprung that idea in your head to write about that specific island? Yes. Well, I had been to Greece before. I had been to Greece for a vacation when I was, uh, I think it was like in 2003. It was the year before the Olympics, the mm-hmm. year that was when the Olympics came back to, to Athens. Um, but then the reason I wanted to write this novel is because it was set on Patmos. And I had uh, always wanted to go to Patmos because I had heard in New York from sort of, you know, rich, rich, glamorous friends, like, Oh, you have to go to Patmos. It's like, where will we go every summer? You know, it was like, very fancy. And, and then, uh, but I remembered Patmos from my Catholic school days being where, uh, the book of revelation was written. So I mean, I remember we would have in, in Catholic school, we would draw scenes from the book of revelation. I mean, how <laughs> twisted I was like a very like Catholic version of dungeons and dragons, but, uh, you know, like drawing, like, the the nude woman on the like you know on the bronco of the the bull um with chalices in her hands and so i that was where he that's where john was uh exiled uh by Domitian to write and wrote <clears throat> what became the book of revelation and so i love this idea of like m- contemporary hedonism of this highest order on the same island that was like christianity's idea of destruction in the end and so i was just so attracted to those uh contrasting forces that i knew even before i went on vacation there that it was going to be a great location and then to to write about and i went for the one summer and i just it was so beautiful and i loved it it was so weird and amazing and so i just sort of built the story from there and you still um, write a book- sometimes oh. I was just going to say, like, sometimes, like, those, I just feel like sometimes, 
for me anyway, there's places that I gravitate to and I know there's a book in it. Like I just spent a month in Madrid over the holidays just to write. And I loved Madrid. I thought Madrid was so beautiful and the people were so warm and the art is so incredible. Maybe one of the best art cities in the world. But for me, I don't think there was a novel there. And that doesn't mean I didn't love Madrid. I loved Madrid, but I just, I didn't feel it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't feel like uh, a novel. Uh, I mean, so I think, yeah. Well, yeah. well, well I, wasn't Hemingway's first novel in Madrid? Was it Madrid? I think it well, I think, um, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of the book? Um, why am I blanking? But, I know, but I've been reading. I've been reading a lot of uh, Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, rereading a lot yeah, of Hemingway. Yeah, about the bull running in Madrid. I, the name escapes me. Um, it, it's history. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. But you. But so you went there for a whole month and felt n- no book was there. I didn't feel a book was there. I just. I didn't find the tensions. It wasn't tense. I need a tension. I need something wrong, or I need like a feel a weird feeling about a place. Like it's an, in conflict somehow. And are you good at, um, do you ever put roadblocks on yourself? Are you good at opening your mind and just allowing the process to happen? Or do you ever deal with kind of, you know, the doubt in your head? Uh, I, I'm really good at like, I'm, I'm so delusional. Uh, I think you have to be to be a writer that I just sort of like let it myself go. And, and I mean, there are certain things that you, you worry about, like, am I portraying these people fairly? I mean, that's actually also on the risk, of course, of a foreign places it's like you want the book to succeed and be exciting and interesting but you don't want to sell everyone under the bus like you know make cheapen a culture or offend anyone either i mean you know because that's not what the job is you know i don't want to i don't want to you know portray a city that incorrectly so um so there's always like questioning you know in your head like is that right is that fair is that good is that what you want to write but um but at the same time, you just have to give yourself over to the story a little bit. How much time do you? Get, how much time do you typically take between one book to the next? It seems like there's there's some space in between your publications, right? I mean, there shouldn't be because like I I, I basically now have no life, and so all I do is write. So, uh, <laughs> um, and I I start the next book before. The other, so I, this novel, next novel comes out, um, next week and I already have written a very short novel, uh, a horror novel, believe it or not. It's a small one set in Luxor, which is just down the, uh, Nile from Cairo. Uh, that's where the, uh, Valley of the Kings is. And, um, but that was actually just meant to be a short story while I was waiting for my edit, but it sort of expanded and expanded. And then, uh, I'm, I'm about a third of the way through this Paris novel that I'm, that I'm writing. So this is a, that's a weird <laughs> extreme where I've already written a number of other things, but, um, I would say it takes me about a year to write the first draft of a book. Mm-hmm. And then it, it takes another year to edit it and clean it up and rework it and make it right. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're doing kind of the Danielle Steele model. I talk about her a lot cause she lives in. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. She's got the biggest house in SF. Um, I used to know her daughters. Oh, okay, cool. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've met them. Um, yeah, I mean, but, uh, escapes me. But um, she's been known for she'll be working on seven books at a time, and she almost draws it up as a circle where she's like, you know, I'm writing this one, I'm editing this one, I'm copy editing this one, I'm notes for this, and she's constantly. There's never a dull moment where she kind right. Of, so it sounds like you're able to meet, if you wanted to do that, you could even expand more on that way of working, but it seems like you're already kind of doing that. Right. Well, I am kind of doing that because I also still write journalism too. So I'm always like working on another thing or there's another project going that's not fiction. Um, and so I do feel like there is a little bit of like so many different like projects at once. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think as that's easy to balance when you're younger. I mean, Danielle Steele, kudos to her for being able to like keep all of those plates spinning. But, um, I like to do the writing. I could only do one at a time because I really devote myself to the character. Like I, and if I feel like I would break out of the character, if I made another one, um, 
I mean, I think it's like very performance-based writing. And it's like you almost like embody the character or do the dialogue. And and um, but I would love that. And I'm always like envious of those people. I, th- I assume they must have assistants like running around holding the holding the manuscripts or something. I I have nothing. Yeah. Um, I have nothing like that. So, um, so did you ever run into Danielle Steele in San Francisco? Uh, no, I mean, no, I feel like she walks on rarefied air where it's just, she kind of float. her and Nancy Pelosi kind of just float above everyone else. Right. You can't really see them. No, but she, when I say she, she has this house, have you ever been to San Francisco? I have. And so, I it's so beautiful. Love it. Yeah. Up North near the Marina area. There's a one street Broadway. It's called billionaires row. And it's oh, wow. Well, they all live. And she has this house that I mean, it looks straight out of the great Gatsby it's covered with foliage that you can't actually see the house from any. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just, it's sitting on a cliff. It's out of this. That's amazing. Literally out of, out of a Gatsby novel, but no, I've never met her, but I think I met the daughters, but whatever. Right. Um, Right. Do you, have you met Dave or Vendela? No, 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 no. Akers and Vendela Vita are there. And I'm trying to think of other SF writers. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, no, I'm uh, good friends with um, Adam Johnson. He lives here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Orphan master's son. Uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, uh, uh, Christopher Moore was on the podcast. He does all those comedic novels. You've, you've seen him, uh, lamb, uh-huh. stuff like that. He's an SF. Uh-huh. I, who else? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Oro Kwan lives here, but she's not. Oh, I a, love her. Yeah. But she hasn't been on the podcast yet. Um, uh, 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 Armistead Maupin. He's, he's oh, yeah. Ex- oh yeah. No. So yeah, there, there's a whole, a whole list for sure. But, uh, That's but I see Adam great. Johnson cause he lives f- four blocks away and no one knows who he is except really for me. So he, he'll see me in the grocery store now and he'll literally be like, Oh fuck. Like he's gonna, he's gonna, <laughs> 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 like he's gonna oh. talk to me again. Um, but he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah. It's been interesting. The doors the podcast is kind of open to and people who want to talk to you. Um, but enough about right. that. Third book comes out. How much time leading up to Destroyers. where now? Yeah, because now is the fourth book that's coming out. And can you just tell everyone the name of it, oh. please? So Destroyers was my third book. And then I decided to write a fourth book set in Venice mm-hmm. called A Beautiful Crime. Got it. Which was a bit kind of like a con artist book. Um and then, and I had lived in Venice, as I told you. Um, and so that was a city I, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with and love and always try to go back once a year ever since I, uh, I mean, I'll sleep. I, for many years, I would just sleep on someone's floor. It wasn't like I was going insane at the Daniele, you know, it was like really just crashing. But um, I loved Venice so much. I always wanted to write about Venice. And so I just took the plunge and did that. And that came out um, in right before the pandemic. And I was so proud of that book. I'm still so proud of that book. Um, but uh, then, the, and then I had a plan to write about Cairo, and I had a really great, you know, idea this for this book, this current book that's about to come out called The Lost American. And um, I had a whole idea of like I'll go in, in spring of 2020 and like really study Cairo. I'd been to Cairo before in 2010, before the Arab Spring, um, and really get to know it now. But then, of course, the pandemic happened, and I was uh, I hibernated in my I had a little cabin in the Berkshires. So I escaped the city and uh, stayed up there. And I was like, "Well, I can't write that book now." Um, and then I thought, "The world is ending. You can write whatever book you want." And so I just started anyway to write this book, and it was such a weird book for me. Um, I think so often the next book I write is a reaction to the last book. Mm. Um, and it's almost like I did this. I want to do something so different. Um, so destroyers and a beautiful crime were, are very different books in so many ways, but they both deal with like centers of wealth and money and a moneyed class of people and leisure and these beautiful places that are, you know, um, very touristy. And it was about wealth and, 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 and privilege. And I didn't want to write that book cause I'm not, that kind of writer, only that kind of writer, you know, it's so easy to fall into these little traps where like, Oh, he writes about the 1%. But, um, 
I wanted to write Thomas Wolfe immediately came to my head. Exactly, exactly. Or like uh, Jay McInerney, or you know what I mean? You just, it's like a certain class of people. And I mean, it's ironic because I, if you saw where I grew up in Ohio, you'd be like, that's, (laughs) no, it was very nice. It was very middle class, you know? So um, I wanted just to go a totally different direction and different lens on the world. And um, I, I, so I, I chose Cairo for that reason, but also while, you know, sort of, I also wanted to talk about uh, what was happening with arms, international arms sales, and uh, you know the, the forces that are, and, and really the, the the impetus was also this idea of can a whole country be complicit in a murder? Uh, what does that mean to have uh, a country be part of uh, to be a, a suspect in a murder uh, or a, or a, a corporation? Um, and so I was just playing with those ideas and this, and this idea came up um, to sort of investigate uh, what would happen. So the premise of the novel is uh, a, a, woman, a, young, a woman in her 30s is in New York City, sort of like at the end of her own rope in New York, being sort of like a, a party person and a life that's sort of unraveling. It's, it's, I think it's what happens in your 30s in New York. And I don't know, maybe out in San Francisco or maybe San Francisco is a bit nicer, but um to people but you kind of like one kind of (laughs) one life ends and you've aged out of it and you've matured out of it and you haven't found the next one yet you know and so that's what's happened to her her brother is uh an arms tech for a defense contractor in massachusetts and he is sent over to egypt um to help he's he fixes basically fixes the weapons that are sold by his company um and while there, he dies mysteriously. Uh, he falls from his hotel balcony, and it's instantly ruled a suicide. She doesn't believe that. Um, you're not. I, you're not quite sure whether she's crazy and not believing that. It's just a state of grief not to accept a suicide, which is often you know what happens when, with a suicide is you don't want to believe that someone you love killed themselves. Or there really was something, you know, uh, something very, there was foul play. And so she ends up going to Egypt to try to figure out what happened to her brother. And there she meets this uh, young gay uh, guy who is Egyptian, who sort of accidentally falls into helping her try to figure it out. Um, And so it just brought in like so many different um, exciting threads into a story for me that I was just really really anxious to explore um, and required a whole new round of research that I hadn't done before for a beautiful crime. I did this research. um, I mean, to death on uh, colonial American silver. I mean, if you want to read a colonial American silver thriller, I wrote that book, but for this one, uh, you know, people were dying to read that, but uh, I, for this one, I was, you know, researching arms sales, and arm agreements and, and you know, also <clears throat> deaths and autopsies overseas. Um, and obviously the, the contemporary history of Egypt, uh, particularly under Sisi um, post-revolution. And so there was a lot to chew on there with, with all of those threads, very different from the last books. And for a novel like that, do you outline... No, I never outline and I always make a promise like in the next book I'm going to outline like I've got to start doing outlines like this is like, you know, you can't write like this anymore. I mean, I talk to authors and they swear and I'm the same way. I don't know what the next page is going to be. Exactly. Uh, And that's what's also so frightening. It's like you don't even know, like, had I written this page the day before the whole book would be so different. Entirely different book. But that's why it's art. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, if, if Picasso went to a canvas knowing exactly how he was going to do it, it wouldn't be art. Um, that's how I think of it as. But then you could talk to I talk to authors and from the first they know the last sentence of that book before they even start the first sentence of the book. And that's the only way they can do it. No. A little like uh, a little idea of how it ends and then just going in that direction. I feel like I'm cursed because. I do that, except people expect somehow I've fallen into this uh, position where people expect to have like a very satisfying plot. 
And so like, I also like have to do some sort of like weird gymnastic where like, I have to like solve something while getting to the end, which is, I mean, I read these novels and they're amazing, but it's like the author obviously felt no impetus to solve what happened. (laughs) I was like, that's not fair. Like I I always have to figure everything out. Yeah. You know, I feel like books are the one I've read books for the ending. It made you not even want to read the book. (laughs) Like, like you get to the end, you're like, really? Like that's it. You, you you gave me 350 pages of brilliancy and fucked it all up in the last seven pages. Absolutely. And I actually think it's so hard to end a novel and of any sort. And so I would, I would say more often than not endings are disappointing. Mm-hmm. Like what's your favorite ending to a book? When is like an ending super successful? Well, it would have been the, it, it, it was, well, it would have been the ending of the last book of the series. So I'm a big, uh-huh. I'm a big John Updike guy. Um, right. The Tetraology Rabbit. Yeah. Final book, Rabbit at Rest, where it's all said and done. The stories, he, I thought he ended that person perfectly. Um, oh, wow. I don't even remember the ending, but I don't know if I read Rabbit at Rest. So don't maybe... Well, maybe you should tell. What do you yeah, think? No, 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 no. It's, it's no. You, you should read it. it, it well, because the last two won the Pulitzers, so that was kind right, of right, right. And what was awesome about that book series was he wrote it every ten years, so you're reading Rabbit in real time. So right. when he wrote that final book, it had been thirty plus years since he wrote the first book. Um, right. You really, I felt like he really just he lived that care and he he made it happen. So that would be, or and also Jurassic Park. Oh, there's a good ending to Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, there's a good ending to Jurassic Park. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah. Gatsby um, is really a, a great ending. Totally. I mean, that you can't really beat that ending. Yeah. Funny, we just I just had on Michael Ferris Smith, and he just put out a book a couple of years ago called Nick. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was kind of a take off what he thought the Gatsby care life could have been like, you know? Right. Um, so that was pretty interesting to hear his version of that. All right. So this this fourth book, so the fifth book's out now. Um, yes. What is? Are you already working on the sixth book? Or are you going? To yes, Sophia? I'm writing. Where are you going? That, I wrote that. So after I wrote the first draft, the of, horror novel uh, you were talking about. No, no, I mean, after I wrote the first draft of Lost Americans, I finally the world opened up, and in 2021, I was in April 2021. I was able to go to Cairo. I took the first plane I could uh, post, you know, inoculation and. Uh, kind of walk the steps of the characters to make sure the city hadn't changed so drastically in 10 years. I was writing about a city that no longer existed. And, uh, you know, as it was the same city, I felt like there was obviously a lot that I put back in, like some great details and, 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 uh, that I, you know, wouldn't have had, had I not done that trip, but it was overall sort of, it, it worked and it succeeded. Um, and so, that was the end of that book. And then, yes, while waiting for this publication, I wrote the short horror novel set in Luxor. It's in a little hotel. Well, on that same trip, I took a <clears throat> boat down the Nile or up the Nile. And uh, I went from Luxor to Aswan, and, uh, which was, is amazing. Um, and swam in the Nile, which, you know, you don't have to worry about crocodiles because after the day, the ass one down, they don't come up. I think you have to worry about parasites. It's like, instead of macro worries, the it's micro worries, but I couldn't resist swimming in the Nile because like, you oh. know, that's swimming in the Nile. So, um, but I went, but uh, before the boat, I stayed in this little, this amazing old Victorian hotel called the winter palace, which is where Agatha Christie wrote and where the announcement of Tutankhamun's grave, uh, the find was discovered. The discovery was announced in 1923, um, and it's this beautiful old hotel. And of course, like anything beautiful, I want to ruin instantly by envisioning a horror, a horror set there. You know, uh, so I wrote. Uh, yeah, I wrote that. And then, we're lucky. Last year, I got a um, writing residency in Paris for oh, wow. seven months. Yeah, which was great. And I had originally thought to write, to, like, I was going to come back home again and write a, a Cincinnati novel. And then this Paris thing happened. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just shift my idea. Instead of Cincinnati, it'll be Paris. So, okay. uh, <laughs> which is not an easy transition, really, for, for Cincinnati a novel. novel. I mean, I, f- I feel like there could be a, a novel about Ohio called Ohio. 
I feel like yes. that's fair. Uh, but you don't like a Cincinnati. Oh, I, I just don't know if Jonathan Franzen has written it already. But uh, <laughs> well, he didn't. I think he was more Illinois, but uh, or Missouri. But um, well, you should do I, it. I mean, you know, Steinbeck did all of California. Uh, right? you know, yeah, why not? Why, make it happen. I always wanted to write a memoir. I mean, I actually don't want to write a memoir, but if I ever wrote a memoir, I want to call it Cincinnati. But it, and it's just about my life, New York on. Cincinnati, but that's I, just the name of it. Yeah, we got we got to end on that one. That was perfect, Chris. I appreciate it. Right, that. Cincinnati. That was perfect. <laughs> um, uh, please let everyone know what's the name of the new book coming out and where can everyone get it and all that good stuff. Lost Americans, uh, and it is out next week it's on March. 14th and you should find it at your local bookstore i hope awesome and are you on instagram or twitter or any social media i'm on instagram Great. uh christ Bolin. i wish i had picked a different name but i didn't realize that it was going to stick instagram yeah. i just did it one time at a at dinner yeah. it was a joke but um and then yeah so i'm on the, i'm not i'm not much of a of a tweeter i have to say you are, are you on Twitter, God no, um, no. I'm I, even with the Instagram for the pot. I'm I I don't I can't do social media. I'm not I I'm not good. I don't eat. I can't uh, either. Yeah, you know, I see someone post a photo of a carrot and it gets eight thousand likes, and You're I right. post, I post a photo of like Walter Mosley and he gets two likes. So I don't. I know. I know. It's so it's so dark. Don't. I mean, it's so disturbing. Makes a difference. Um, um, you feel like you could write a novel or just like film your cat. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I'm, I'm, we, we can show at Reba's. Everyone knows Reba on the podcast. She's sitting there patiently waiting for me. <laughs> so that's my little bulldog. And that means it's probably me to go. But Chris, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you.